Please join me for a word of prayer. God, take my words and, and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our will. Set them on fire for love of your Son in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. The great philosophical question of the 21st century is going to be whether we will knock humans off the pedestal of moral exceptionalism and instead define ourselves as just another animal in the forest. This according to Wesley Smith, writing in 2005. In other words, the question that he poses is, what is a human being? That's a strangely contemporary question and a very important question. We've been in a sermon series through the opening chapters of Genesis. And there's no place better than Genesis to answer that question of what is a human being? What is man? What is woman? We've seen, just a quick review, we've seen that man and woman have a unique role in God's creation. Out of all the created world, human beings are his special uh, creation, uniquely valued, uniquely capable, uniquely good. We've seen that humanity uh, has placed in a several key relationships and that we cannot understand ourselves outside of our relationship to God. We are made to be like him and in his image. We are made for companionship, to be with one another. We are made in a relationship to the good earth, that we are stewards over it. And my contention through this whole uh, series is that you and I cannot fully understand ourselves nor be fully who you are meant to be if we, if we do not appreciate what Genesis has to tell us about about ourselves. We saw that man has a couple of key responsibilities, responsibility to work and a responsibility to rest as well. And again, you and I cannot be fully who we are, cannot be who we are meant to be uh, without any of these attributes that we see in Genesis. And all these have been positive. These have been positive attributes of what we are. And now we're going to turn to Genesis chapter 3 and we're going to find out a negative, what we are not. And while negative, it is no less essential. And the same contention holds. You and I cannot be who we are meant to be. We cannot fully understand ourselves if we do not take into account what we find in Genesis chapter 3. Three, what is commonly called the fall of man. I think it will be helpful. I just want to make sure I'm as inclusive. Fall of man and women. I want to make any, let anyone feel excluded. So women, you're 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 in cocaine. You're uh, implicated too. It'd be helpful to turn to that passage in uh, in your Bible. Very first two pages. We're going to. You'll see that the Genesis chapter three is really divided into three easily discernible scenes. We have first the, the reality of the fall, then we're going to see human beings, a response to the fall, and then we're going to see the results of the fall. Adam and Eve are set in the garden and they're giving one prohibition and an otherwise rule-free existence. Don't touch the one tree. Don't touch the tree in the center. And in chapter 3, verse 6, we read this. The woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. And she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. The one prohibition that is placed upon them is the one prohibition they couldn't resist. We are fallen. That's what the title of my uh, passage says. It probably says the same thing in your Bible. And you don't need to be a Christian. You don't need to believe in the biblical account to appreciate that there's something wrong. And it's not just something that's wrong out there. There's something wrong that's in here. One philosopher said, what's the heart of the human problem? The part of the human problem is the problem with the human heart. 
And by heart, he doesn't, this gentleman doesn't mean like the heart as opposed to other aspects. Heart as in emotions, mind as in thinking. No, he means what's the problem with humanity is, is humanity. In other words, you can't say there's a good part here. My mind is sort of unsullied, but my emotions, they're free and untouched. I remember intervening on a sibling spat, and I said, did you hit your sister? And one of the children responded, no, but my hand did. <laughs> As if, as if, you know, me here, I, I'm, it's just his hand operating independently that, no. Uh, it, in other words, you cannot look at you and say, it's, our intellect is unsullied, we're rational creatures. No, you're, our intellect is clouded. We do not think as we ought to think. Just think, for evidence, see the recent concern about living the, in the echo chamber of our own minds and believing only those things which we want to believe. Our emotions are, are fallen. We're fickle. Uh, I've seen wedding vows that have been replaced with till death do us part with the vow till as long as love shall last. That's a pretty flimsy vow. How long does love last? Not long. Our wills are affected. You see what I'm saying? There's not, we can't say, you know, I think clearly my emotions are wrong. My emotions are right. My head, no. In our totality, in our whole human uh, experience, there's something wrong. There's something askew. None of us are as bad as we could be. That doesn't make any sense. Human beings are capable of great acts of generosity and beautiful works of art, as we've seen in our good art class. But what this uh, passage implies is that there's no aspect of any person that is left unsullied. Right? We are holistically affected, holistically fallen. Back to my original contention. You cannot understand yourself. You cannot be fully who you are meant to be if you do not appreciate that. Now, how could that be the case? Well, just consider, what if you began every day with the two of the basic affirmations that we find in Genesis? Affirmation number one, that God created you and me, humanity, with a special role, special value. Human beings are good. I am a good person. However, I am fundamentally flawed. What would your day look like if you began with those two principles in mind? Any number of implications, but certainly one is this. Because I am flawed, I am frail, I cannot give free rein to every impulse. Every opinion I have should not be expressed. Every desire I have should not be pursued. Every thought that I have in my skull-sized kingdom should not be trusted without some verification. It's a, because I am fallen, I cannot give free rein to every impulse. The Glade family, Frederick Glade, immigrated to Iowa in 1860 and settled in a little corner of Iowa right next to South Dakota in Iowa. Spirit Lake is the name. There's a little book that captures some of my great-great, however far great-grandfather's experience. It's called Little Heathens, Hard Times and High Spirits on an Iowa Farm. The author writes this. For us children, building character, developing a sense of responsibility, and above all, improving one's mind constituted the essential focus of our lives. Childhood was generally considered to be a disease or, at very least, a disability to be ignored for the most part and remedied as quickly as possible. 
Isn't that great? Childhood was considered to be a disease to be remedied or ignored, to be as quickly. What about childhood needs to be remedied? You know, we had a great VBS, a lot of fun. Jesus spoke glowing, glowingly of children. So clearly there is some innocence and playfulness and trust and uh, disposition to trust that's essential to, is a good thing. But what is it about a child? It's their impulsiveness. Children are impulsive. Adults are impulsive. But a child especially doesn't have any barrier between what they think and what they say. Sometimes that produces very humorous results. A child has no barrier between what they want and what they grab. There's an impulsiveness to a child. And an awareness of our fallenness is the remedy for this childhood disease of impulsiveness, which, as you know, is not limited at all to childhood. Self-expression seems like it's a very high value today. One must be who they're meant to be. One must be true to what's in here. And to that, we would absolutely say, yes, of course. Absolutely. But sometimes I wonder if this appeal to self-expression is just a, a, a little license for indulging whatever it is that I happen to want at that time. So self-expression must also be coupled with self-reflection. And one form of self-reflection is, uh, is as I have just stated. Because I am fundamentally good, fundamentally flawed, I cannot give free reign to every impulse. Let's move on. The next chapter of our story is not printed for you in your service leaflet, but you may know it. We move from the experience of human frailty to our response. What do we do? What do we do with this... Uh, the fact that Adam and Eve have fallen, what do they do? Well, they hide. First, they hide themselves from one another with fig leaves. And then they hide themselves, more importantly, they hide themselves from God. This perk picking up in verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he walked in the garden in the cool of the day. Apparently, God out for his morning stroll with Adam and Eve. But now, this time, Adam and Eve, uh, they don't join God. Instead, they hide. Why? Adam says, Adam's, Adam, said, Adam said, verse 10, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and in my fear I hid. What do we do with our frailty? We hide it. We're ashamed of it. Now, again, I want you to simply appreciate the truthfulness of the biblical account. The Bible's telling you a true story about yourself. What do you do with your frailty? You hide it. And I hide it. I remember playing soccer in my childhood home. Playing soccer inside was a no-no. And I kicked the ball and I broke the, uh, the ceiling. The, not, it wasn't a chandelier. It was uh, the, the light in my, my room. And so there's the wrong thing I did. But even worse than the wrong, was the, the, I tried to hide it. And I was six years old, I think, and, and I, I'm sure I exaggerated the time in my hindsight, but I would go to great lengths to make sure my, my parents just hang out casually by the door, 
you know, kind of blocked the entrance as, as much as I could to keep mom and dad from entering my room. And whenever they would enter my room, I've always tried to have them look at the floor. Like, go to great lengths, as silly as uh, covering yourself with fig leaves, to simply hide. Hide my frailty. And when I was finally caught, because lo and behold, you can't hide a broken light forever, my mom's, I think the punishment was pretty mild, having already punished myself thoroughly uh, in my own mind. I think my mom said something to the effect of, don't ever, don't ever feel like you have to hide from me. Whatever it is, that's a good thing for a mom to say. On a more serious note, I have a friend recently who came to the realization that they had a problem with alcohol, a problem with consumption. And it was very sh shocking to me. Because looking at this friend, I think, gosh, there's there is simply no indicator in my, in my assessment. Good family, good person. You know, nothing that would say red light. And I just thought to myself, how would I know? How would you know if, if you got a problem with that or anything else? Beware of hiddenness. Hiddenness should be the little red light on your dashboard. And for him, if this person, it was not necessarily the amount of consumption, although that was not insignificant. It was the hiddenness. Hiding it from his family. Hiding, that was the red light, the indicator that said, this is something that is becoming out of control. Hiddenness is a red light. Rick Wright is, uh, leads the pastoral care ministry of the Falls Church. He told me very early on in my training that most wounds to the soul, most, most, most hurts, interior hurts, are cured in the same way that you cure most wounds to the body. And that is you give it light and you give it air and you keep the wound clean. It's in hiding it that exacerbates. And I don't know what's worse in this story, either the fall or the hiddenness that results from the fall. So here are the implications. Because we are all tempted, you and I, this is a true story. This is what we do. Because we hide our fallenness, we must run the risk of vulnerability. Vulnerability. Certainly vulnerability with God. To you all hearts are open, all desires known. Vulnerability with somebody, maybe not everybody, but vulnerability. And if there's something which is just you cannot bring yourself to mention, friends, that is a red light. Vulnerability is essential for the human experience. You cannot be fully who you are meant to be. You cannot understand yourself without it. So we've seen the reality of our fallenness. We've seen our response, which is to hide. Now we're going to, going to look at the results. Picking up in verse 14, because you have done this, God says to Adam and Eve, because you have done this, there are implications. Because you have done this, implied in verse 16. Because you have done this, to verse 17, uh, to Adam. Because you have done this, there's going to be implications. So there are a few specifics. The implications are first that marriage is hard. This, this, this complementary relationship between man and woman is now broken and desire and dominance will be the words that mark marriage now. Work is hard. Raising children is hard. 
in sum, the results of our frailty, our disobedience, is this. Life's hard. Work is hard. We've had two excellent sermons in this series on work. We thought about our profession, our vocation, our calling, that God has created you for work, and we find satisfaction and fulfillment in work. And yes, 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 a thousand times, yes. But I wonder if we, in emphasizing the goodness and our calling to work, we can overlook this basic principle that work is hard. Antonin Scalia was quoted as saying that he loved his job. He loved his career. He had a great job and a great life. Do you know how much of his job he actually loved? He said he loved 20%. 20% gave him joy. 20% gave him fulfillment. If you're familiar with uh, chariots of fire, I feel God's pleasure when I run. 20% of his work life, he felt God's pleasure. That meant 80% was just what? What you find in the Genesis account, toil and labor and sweat. I hate to jump from Antonin Scalia to Belinda Carlisle, but we are tempted to believe what she sung about in the early 80s when she sang, ooh, baby, do you know what's worth? We'll make heaven a place on earth. We're all tempted to believe that we can make heaven a place on earth. Just find the right somebody to love, the right job to do, the right fill in the blank. And it's not realistic and it's simply not true. The inventor of the World Wide Web was Sir Tim Berners-Lee. He wrote in the late 1990s in a book entitled Weaving the Web that, quote, the experience of seeing the web take off by grassroots efforts of thousands gives me tremendous hope that we can collectively make our world what we want. We'll make heaven a place on earth. Now, 20 years later, ask the same question with stolen data, online addiction, and everything else that has, has been of interest and focus in these past few years. And his reflection is this. I wouldn't say the internet has failed with a capital F, maybe a lowercase f, but it has failed to deliver the positive, constructive society that many of us had hoped for. The World Wide Web did not make heaven a place on earth. Without the realization of our fallen nature and its consequences, you and I will always believe in this sentimental hope that we'll make heaven a place on earth. We just need the right fill in the blank. But if we are informed by the biblical account of our human condition and the results of our human condition, we'll simply learn that that is sentimentality. You know what sentimentality is? It's long-term cruelty. We'll know that these dreams are simply not possible. And I don't want you to hear that we should now simply have a depressed realism or a cynicism. Eh, life's hard. Get used to it. No, that's not what I hope the implications are at all. Rather, I hope what we can come to is a peaceful acceptance of who you are, who I am, all of our faults included. Come to a peaceful acceptance of your people close to you, your spouse, your children, all faults included. Come to a peaceful acceptance of your work, 
Do you love your work 20% or 20% of it? Boy, I feel like I'm way above that, and I certainly have my, allow myself some complaints every now and then. Do you see? It's not depressed cynicism and realism. Life's hard. Get used to it. No. It's a peaceful acceptance of who I am and those around me. Let me circle back to my opening premise. I began by stating that without these opening chapters of Genesis, you and I will never be who we are meant to be. We'll never fully understand who we are. And this chapter teaches us that we are fallen. And therefore, you and I cannot give free reign to every impulse. Every thought you think is not a good one. Every desire you have is not a good one. Every opinion you have is not, right? This chapter teaches us that our response to our frailty is to hide. And we must beware of hiding. We must run the risk of vulnerability. Vulnerability is a great word. This chapter teaches us that the result of our frailty is that life is hard. And this should encourage us to a peaceful acceptance of ourselves, of our work, those around us, all of our intractable faults included. Now I want to consider as we draw our thoughts to a close, not only what this passage teaches us about who we are, but what it teaches us about God, and this just very briefly. You know what God's first words are to human beings? It's a question. Interesting, isn't it? That the first thing that God says to you and me is a question. He asks, where are you? What a, what a timeless question, isn't it? Where are you? Where are you? Searching words. Like a man looking for a lost treasure. Where are you? Gracious words from a tender father inviting his children to return to him. All the muck and mire and faults included. God is still calling out. <laughs> These first words are enduring words. Where are you, friends? And he calls out to us because he has provided a remedy, a way for us to return. These words, take and eat, take and eat, which proved to be our demise, are also words of, well, hope, words of really our salvation as well. On the night before Jesus was crucified, he gathered with his followers and he took a piece of bread and he said take and eat this is my body which I give to all to all the sons of Adam and all the daughters of Eve and all their brokenness as a remedy for them and as a revelation of my love for them take and eat so God is still calling out where are you so let's stop our striving, stop holding on to dreams that will make heaven a place on earth. Stop telling yourself you can fix yourself, just work a little harder. You can fix your spouse, just work a little harder. You can fix your work. Stop striving. Stop hiding. Stop covering it. Stop leaning against the door to not let your parents in and come to him. And I bet if you do, you will hear these words that my mom said to me. Don't, don't ever hide. So stop our hiding, stop our striving, and return to him.
Amen. Please rise.